Welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary Podcast. We're continuing our series titled Presence. Throughout this series, we're learning to become aware of the divine in our midst. Today, Pastor Jason Coker is back with a teaching from Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 21, titled Relationships. In fact, oftentimes God becomes sort of the replacement for having a, a good, healthy, loving relationship with the other people in our lives. And so then we create a God that we can relate to one-on-one. Sometimes I call this like my boyfriend, Jesus. <laughs> right? like The Jesus that I'm in love with, the Jesus I sing love songs to, uh, the Jesus who will like, fulfill all my needs and desires, the Jesus who, if I just you know, drop the right amount of coin into his slot, then I'll get whatever I want back out of it, right? That kind of transactional Jesus or the Jesus that becomes a proxy for having to be in relationship with the people in my life every day that truth be told, most of the time thoroughly annoy me. But I think being a Christian doesn't mean having a relationship with God so that we don't have to have relationships with others. I think being a Christian means entering into a certain kind of relationship with God so that we can then learn to have that kind of relationship with other people. So that's what I'm going to try to say today. Maybe we could pray that that would actually happen. Yeah? Father, we thank you for today and this opportunity to come together and to learn, to grow, to worship together as uh, fellow followers of Christ. We ask that as we open up this uh, passage of Scripture today, Genesis chapter 15, that uh, you would spark something fresh and new in each of us, that we would see it with fresh eyes and hear it with, hear it with fresh ears, that uh, you would begin a creative work in each of us this morning that would begin to uh, move us closer towards the kinds of loving relationships that you are calling us to. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs> All right, time to put this coffee down, otherwise, I'm not going to get anything done today. So, uh, we had an amazing opportunity uh, when we were in Amsterdam uh, to visit the Anne Frank House. Some of you maybe have been there, maybe you haven't, but you're aware of what the Anne Frank House is. But Anne Frank, of, of course, was uh, a teenager, a teenage girl who lived in Amsterdam during World War II and was Jewish, and so she was under threat while, they, while the, the Nazis were occupying Amsterdam. She was under threat for about two years of being <coughs> sent off to a concentration camp. And to give away the ending of this story, if you haven't read the diary of Anne Frank, Anne Frank eventually was sent off to a concentration camp and killed in a concentration camp. After World War II, the only surviving member of the family, Anne's father, Otto, discovered her diary because it had been kept safe by family friends. And so after World War II, he discovered the diary, uh, was entrusted to him by family friends who had been keeping it. He read it and couldn't believe uh, the depth of insight and awareness that Anne demonstrated in the writings of her diary. The diary of Anne Frank is not a typical teenage diary. And the reason, of course, is Anne Frank knew exactly what the historical importance of that moment was. And so she actually practiced writing about what was happening to her and to her family and to her friends because she suspected that this would be an important record for later generations. It's an amazing story. 
Uh, and some of you maybe read the Diary of Anne Frank in school, uh, or maybe just on your own, and you were moved by it, as was I. Uh, however, I did not know some things about Anne Frank's story that just blow me away. So when you tour the Anne Frank house, it's essentially a museum. Uh, they've taken the original house, which wasn't a house at all, it was a factory. Because Anne Frank's father, Otto, was in the business in Amsterdam of creating a pectin product for like jams and jellies, right? So when you go to the store and you buy jelly and you know it's got that sort of sticky consistency to it, that's because they add a preservative to the jelly called pectin that helps produce what we're all accustomed to like smearing across our toast in the morning. And so when Otto moved to Amsterdam, he bought into a business there with a couple of business associates creating uh, one of these kinds of products. And so what we know of as the Anne Frank House actually was a kind of factory. It was a processing plant. And so Otto Frank and his family, because they were Jewish, were beginning to come under increasing threats from the occupying Nazis that uh, they were gonna be sent off to work camps. And Otto and his wife knew that this was gonna be a problem, so they began to set into to motion a plan for what would happen when the Nazis showed up at their door. And when the Nazis did show up at their door, it turned out that they already had a plan in place that they're gonna execute. The plan was essentially to hide in the house that was attached to this food processing building. There was this house that you could only get to through a third floor corridor. And that corridor allowed you access into this house that was essentially part of a neighborhood there in Amsterdam, still there. What I didn't know, though, before I toured the house, is that Otto's business partners had helped him make this plan. Otto's business partners, you see, weren't Jewish. Otto's business partners were Dutch. But they knew the threat that the Nazis represented to the local Jewish population. And in fact, a couple years prior to this, the Nazis had made it illegal for Jews to do all kinds of things. They'd made it illegal for Jews to go out and walk around during the day, uh, at, you know, between certain times. They made it illegal for them uh, to be out after a particular time at night. So there was a curfew for Jews that didn't apply to Gentiles. They also made it illegal for Nazis or for uh, Jews to shop at any business other than a Jewish-owned business. And then lastly, they made it illegal for Jews to own businesses in the city of Amsterdam. Well, when that happened, Otto obviously was breaking the law because he owned this business. So Otto's business partners drew up new ownership contract paperwork that excluded Otto Frank by name, but just agreed to continue to put aside his share of the money so that when all of this blew over, he could still have access to those business earnings. Uh, and now it, it occurs to me that it took a, a tremendous amount of insight and courage for Otto's non-Jewish business partners to step up and to take that risk when the time came. And it made me wonder, you know, whether I would do something like that today. If given the opportunity, would I break the law if it meant doing what was right for another human being, especially another human being who wasn't like me? Would I break the law for uh, a friend who was Jewish? Would I break the law for a friend who was a brown-skinned immigrant? Would I break the law for a friend who was Muslim in order to keep them safe 
from the law. That, that, I think, took courage enough, but then later, when the Nazis came knocking and, and pulling Jews out of their homes and publicly executing Jews and sending Jewish children off to work camps, that's when the business partners all got together and decided to execute this plan that they had hatched, which was to hide Jews in the house behind the building. And so that began, that began the Frank family's two-year journey of living in a house with darkened windows so that nobody could see who was inside, living in a house with one toilet. There were three households living in there. Uh, there was one toilet, and they couldn't flush it during the day because they were afraid that the noise would tip off other folks that there were people living there. So they went from sort of breaking an administrative law, a law that said that Jews couldn't own businesses, to then overtly breaking uh, a very powerful edict that you could not hide Jews. I really came away from touring the Anne Frank house, not, not just impressed by Anne Frank's own commitment to recording what happened to her, but really impressed with the love that was shown to the Frank family by their friends and business owners who weren't Jewish. And it made me wonder if I would be willing to pay that same cost. I'd like to think that I would. But the truth is, is those kinds of things to lesser degrees are happening around us. And I'm not sure that I am paying that price. And I'm not standing up here you know, looking for somebody to make me feel better. It's just when you have those kinds of experiences, it makes you sort of reevaluate what your commitment to love and relationships really might be. Today I plan for us to look at Genesis chapter 15, so I'm going to read that through to you. Uh, because we're having a little technical difficulty, the passage won't be up on the screen as it usually is. So I'm just going to go ahead and read it. Graciela read the first portion of it earlier in our worship service. What I want to do today is read through the rest of it and talk about what it describes here. Because I think it has direct importance and bearing on what it means to have a relationship with God. And then for us to recapitulate that relationship with other people. So Genesis chapter or chapter 15, starting in verse 1, is the part that Graciela read. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Abram, of course, was Abraham's name before God changed it to Abraham. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram, for I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, who was one of his slaves. And Abram said, you have given me no offspring, and so a slave born into my house will now be my heir. Notice this. Prior to this, in Genesis chapter 12, God has already made a promise to Abram that he's going to greatly expand his offspring, that he's going to lead him to a, to a new land, to a new place, and there a whole new nation is going to be born. And so when God comes to Abram a couple chapters later and says, hey, Abram, it's me again. Good to see you. Remember that big reward that I'm going to give you. Abram immediately sort of calls him on it. Right? Abram immediately sort of appeals to the promise that God made to him and said, how is this possibly uh, even going to happen? I don't have children of my own, so I don't see how I can have a nation of my own. He's sort of calling God to the terms of the contract. God's response is interesting. Maybe you know what it's like to try to call God on the terms of a contract. Hmm. I've done it many, many, many times. It doesn't work very well. 
I never seem to get what I wanted. I always seem to get what I need. I think the same thing happens to Abram here. But the way that God does it, I think, is really challenging and inspiring. And so, verse 4, But the word of the Lord came to Abram and said, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. And he brought him outside. I just love this scene. He brought him outside, and he said, Look toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to. And then he said, So shall your descendants be. And he, meaning Abram, believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it as righteousness. So what has happened in this first couple of passages is a pretty significant shift in Abram, in Abram's heart, in Abram's sense of trust for God. It begins with God saying, hey, remember me? Remember the promise I gave you? Abram immediately responds by sort of reminding God of the terms of the contract. God, in turn, responds to Abram sort of calling him out and says, hey, why don't you come outside, look up at the stars, what do you see? That is how I'm going to fulfill my promise. And without answering Abram's question, which was, yeah, but how is this possible? How is this actually going to work? When are you going to fulfill your promise to me? Without answering any of those questions, God simply shows him the stars, and Abram switches from negotiating the terms of the contract to just believing God. In other words, what I'd like to suggest to you is that Abram leaves behind a kind of transactional posture towards God, and he turns towards a posture of trust. And when that happens, when Abram lets go of the transaction and he embraces the trust, God counts that as righteousness. He reckons it to him. It, it says in some translations he credited it to him as righteousness, which is interesting because it's accounting language that's being used here. Reckoning, crediting. As soon as Abram leaves behind the posture of an accountant, no offense to the accountants in the room, when he leaves behind the posture of an accountant, God becomes an accountant and deposits righteousness into his account. Hmm. Now, that's a little tip to what I think happens later in the passage. So I want to just read that to you. And then we're going to talk about some weird stuff that happens in here. And I'm going to tell you what I think is happening and why that's relevant to us. Verse 7. Then after that sort of amazing scene where he stares at the stars and he believes God, verse 7 says this. Then he said to him, God said to Abram, I'm the Lord who brought you up out of Ur of the Chaldeans and to give you this land to possess. But then he said, Oh God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, this gets important, although it gets tedious. You ready? Then he said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these things and he cut them, that's the animals. He brought him all these things and he cut them in two, laying each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, 
Abram drove him away. So this isn't a very pretty picture, I know, but here's what's happening here. God is now entering into an official covenant with Abram. And we know this because archaeology has dredged up all of these old records of ancient Babylonian and Sumerian practices. And one of the things that we have learned is that a really important part of the ancient Near Eastern world were what we now call these suzerain vassal covenants. A suzerain vassal covenant or a suzerain vassal treaty is essentially an agreement between a more powerful party and a less powerful party, right? That's the suzerain, the more powerful one, and the vassal, the less powerful one. This is all sort of ancient language that's very hierarchical, right? Well, this is how a covenant would be cut back in that day. When two people wanted to come to an agreement and one of them was more powerful than the other one, they would gather a bunch of animals, they would cut those animals in half, and they would arrange the halves apart from each other, one side and the other. So what you would have is essentially a big, bloody mess. With two halves of the animals on either side, creating a kind of bloody row or aisle in between them. And then the two parties would walk up and down that bloody aisle, and they would recite the terms of the agreement. Here is what I will do for you, and here is what you will do for me, walking back and forth between the slaughtered animals, as if to say, may all of this and more happen to me if I do not fulfill my end of Now, today's contracts aren't quite as ruthless as that. But the spirit of today's contracts really is the same. We both agree to do something, and if we don't, every contract spells out the consequences of what happens if you don't fulfill your part of the bargain. In the ancient world, if you didn't fulfill your part of a very important bargain, then the consequence was death. Right? It's a bloody mess. So that's what's happening in Genesis chapter 15. This language, in fact, is borrowed from some of the ancient Sumerian texts that we have found that predate the Bible. What the Jews did during their day was borrow from the cultures around them in order to build a civilization that made sense to them. And so what we have is God approaching Abram to create a relationship, to create an agreement in a way that would make sense to Abram. This is why, of course, Abram's trying to like call God on the terms of the agreement at the very beginning of Genesis 15. Because Abram's entire posture, his entire orientation would be, you are a suzerain, you're a god, I am a vassal, I'm your servant, what are you going to give to me and what do I owe you in return? Hmm. That's why he begins the whole conversation that way. So what we see then beginning in verse 7 is God entering into a very traditional covenant with Abram. And in verse 12 we see something really interesting happen in relationship to that particular covenant. Verse 12 says this, As the sun went down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. 
Then the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain. Now, I'm about to read to you the terms of the covenant. This is what's happening. A reciting of the terms. Then the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs. And they shall be slaves there. And they shall be oppressed for 400 years. But... I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. And as for yourself, you shall go to your ancestors in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites. That's the local population is not yet complete. These are the terms of the agreement. The promise that God is making to Abram is this. Hey, it's going to take a long time. It's not going to happen the way that you would like it to happen. But my promise to you is that your offspring will become a great nation and they will inherit this place. They will have a land of their own and you will be a great people. It's going to look bad for a while, but it's going to work out in the end. I promise. Now, remember how these covenants work, right? A promise has been made. But there's something else that has to happen. They have to walk between the slaughtered carcasses of the animals. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. It's one of those lists that we find in the Old Testament. So, God, in the form of a smoking fire pot, which is probably just the very best way that an ancient author could describe the presence of God, God, as a smoking fire pot, passes between the cut pieces of the slaughtered animals as if to say, may all of this and more happen to me if I do not fulfill my end of the covenant. But there's something missing. Because Abram didn't pass between the pieces. Only God passes between the pieces of the slaughtered animals. As if to say, if I don't fulfill the terms of the covenant, may all this and more happen to me. And if you don't fulfill the terms of the covenant, may all this and more happen to me. So God takes the old form of a bloody, violent, destructive covenant, and God promises to fulfill both sides of the agreement. God is not an accountant. God is loving and just and generous. And only a loving and just and generous God would say, if I don't fulfill my part of the bargain, then may all of this horrible slaughter happen to me. But here's the catch. If you don't fulfill your part of the covenant, I'll pay that price too. So God takes the whole notion of a kind of quid pro quo covenant and he totally dismantles it. 
He takes the form of an ancient treaty and he uses the form of the ancient treaty to meet the needs of the person that he loves, but he dismantles the form of the ancient treaty through a loophole. And the loophole is he doesn't make Abram walk through the aisle of pieces. He does it himself. Now, you could be forgiven if you were wondering if Jesus' slaughter on the cross was a fulfillment of that. Because Abram was not faithful to that covenant. And Abram's offspring and descendants were famously unfaithful to that covenant. Every prophetic book in the Old Testament is about some grizzled old man walking out of the wilderness and saying, you guys aren't doing it. You're not doing what you promised you would do. And God's saying, yeah, I know. I always knew. And I'm going to make it right. And God makes it right by becoming flesh and being slaughtered in Abram's place, in our place. So, there's a little bit of bloody atonement theology for you. <laughs> Isn't that cheerful on a Sunday morning? Oh, yeah. Here's what I learned about relationships out of this. I basically learned three things. The first is this, that godly, loving, healthy, productive relationships are humble. They're humble relationships. Now, I have proof if you're like into the Bible, right? I'm going to read a passage that you probably hear every time you go to a wedding. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. But here's the part that really sticks with me. It does not insist on its own way. When was the last time a preacher told you that God does not insist on God's own way? Is God not loving? Isn't God love itself? Then if God is loving and God is true, then God does not insist on God's own way in his relationship with you. I don't have that figured out. But I can tell you from my own experience that it's true. No matter how many times I try to run from the divine presence of God, no matter how many times I try to reject what God has to offer me because I, it just scares me, that God is like, it's okay, I can wait. I'll outlast you. And there God is when I come back around again patient, just waiting for me, not insisting, not threatening, not punishing, not cajoling, not manipulating, not shaming, just graciously waiting. And somehow I always come back. Paul's way of putting this is, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. God is humble in his relationship with Abram in this particular story from Genesis 15 because God does not come to Abram in a way that is sort of God's way of doing things, right? God comes to Abram in a way that makes sense to Abram. 
This whole bit about slaughtering animals and arranging the pieces, that's not God's idea. That's ancient Near Eastern culture. God is not some bloodthirsty, divine, you know, white-bearded man in the sky who, you know, is bloodthirsty and looking for everybody to pay the price for our sins. No, that's us. Mm, come on. We're the ones who are bloodthirsty. Come on. And ready for others to suffer and pay the price for their sins. God took that whole model, that whole way of dealing with things. He entered into it. He used it so it would make sense to Abram. And then he took it apart from the inside out. Through a loophole. That's what I mean when I say God is humble. God met Abram in a way that Abram would understand. And dealt with what Abram needed. That's, of course, the story of Christ when we talk about the incarnation of Christ, the manifestation of God in the flesh. That is literally God coming to us in a way that we could understand. I love the way John's gospel put it. Right? God became flesh, right? Pitched his tent and dwelt among us. John 1. God meets us. In a way that we will understand God is humble, relationships that are godly are humble. Number two, godly relationships are generous relationships. Love does not keep an account of wrongs, but only does what is right. God approaches Abram, and he takes Abram's desire for a contract, for a quid pro quo, for you know, the terms that will make sense to him. And God says, no, no, I'll take care of all of it. You can't pay this price, Abram. You don't have enough riches to cover the cost. I'll cover both sides of it. God fundamentally approaches us from a posture of extreme generosity. And God's kingdom is a kingdom of generosity. And the relationships that happen within it are relationships of generosity, not stingy relationships that say, yeah, but what have you done for me lately? I do that. Just be warned. We do that to each other in our friendships and our marriages and the way that we parent our children. We love quid pro quo contracts because they can be easily controlled and manipulated, but God cannot be controlled or manipulated despite our best efforts. And one of his ways of making sure that we can't and don't is by refusing to play by our terms and rules. He is generous in his relationships with us. Calls us to generous relationships with each other. Last thing I notice is that God is faithful. May all of this and more happen to me if you don't keep your terms of the contract. Hmm. No matter what, no matter how much you screw it up, no matter how much you fail, no matter how often you stumble, God is still faithful. And that is a godly relationship. One where we are faithful to each other without counting the cost. Mm. 
Now, the trouble with that, of course, is that leaves us vulnerable to being abused. And many of us know better than others what it means to be told that we have to have a generous, faithful relationship as a way of being controlled. So I want to name that just for a moment. Because this is what a godly relationship looks like. But if we take a godly relationship, one that is humble and generous and faithful, and we turn that into a new contract that enslaves you to a relationship that is harmful or hurtful or unloving, then we have totally failed the spirit of what God is doing. God doesn't take one contract and replace it with a better kind of contract. God takes the contract, blows it up, and replaces it with love. And love is loving in any relationship, both to others and to ourselves. There are some relationships that you probably need to dig deeper into. Some relationships that you probably need to approach with more humility, not expecting that person to relate to you on your terms, but relating to them on their terms, because that is what would be loving. I don't know who said this, but I think it's super helpful. It's not totally comprehensive, but my understanding of humility is this. Humility is not thinking of your, less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Okay. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Now, I can tell you with all honesty that I need to think about all of you a lot more. Because I am really good at thinking about myself. I'm every bit as like arrogant and egotistical and self-centered as I appear. And so I, I need to lean into that humility in order to be in good, godly relationships with everybody in my life. But that doesn't mean that I need to subject myself to every relationship that will beat me up and abuse me. Being humble doesn't mean becoming somebody's whipping boy or girl. And so maybe for you, there are relationships where you do not need to lean into thinking of the other and their needs first. You need to remember your own. Because those relationships exist too. And if anybody like me uses the word of God to keep you trapped in a relationship that is abusive or harmful or hurtful, then we have totally abused the spirit of love. Do you hear that? Because there is a mutuality to any good, godly relationship. Just because God is willing to be faithful to eternity and pay the price for our failings does not mean that God doesn't expect something in return for our relationship. 
God has given us love, and what God expects in return is not payment. What God expects in return is not simply sacrifice. What God expects in return is love. When we enter into healthy relationships, we leave behind the controlling, the manipulative, the accounting that can be so easily used to control, and we simply enter into a relationship of love. And that is always a mutual give and take. Maybe the most shocking revelation of God in the Bible is that God is a God who desires to be loved. That is scandalous. So let's love God. Not just for our sake but for each other's sake, because that kind of love becomes the ground upon which we build everything. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.